0: Welcome back to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Steven Dozeman. It would be hard to overstate the importance of culture. It teaches us, heals us, rips us apart, and puts us back together in new and surprising ways. Given its fundamental importance to the human experience, it would make sense that looking at the sort of people who produce it for us, thinking about who they are and what their experiences are and what that may say about our cultural products that they make, would be an important part of understanding that culture and ourselves. There is no product without a producer, and cultural products are no different. So understanding cultural products means thinking more critically about who produces them. This is the goal of the recently published Culture is Bad for You, Inequality in the Cultural and Creative Industries from Manchester University Press in 2020. Written by... Orion Brook, Mark Taylor, and my guest today, Dave O'Brien. The book combines quantitative data analysis with personal interviews to weave together the complicated picture of who the people behind some of our most cherished experiences are. Dave O'Brien is Chancellor's Fellow in Cultural and Creative Industries, based in the School of History of Art at Edinburgh University, and is also the author of Cultural Policy, Management, Value, and Modernity in the Creative Industries. So, Dave O'Brien, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hey, it's um, great, great to be on the podcast. It's um, sort of slightly strange to be um,
0: doing things from from the other way around, I guess. Um, yeah, I yeah. understand you're a host yeah. here. So, um, so as a kind of kickoff, could you maybe introduce yourself and tell listeners a little about your background and what your research tends to focus on? Yeah, sure. So I guess, obviously, the, the main and most important thing is
1: um, I'm part of the New Books Network, um, which is um, something I've been doing for, for a while. And the stuff I, I do reflect my interests, which I guess are kind of um, in sociology, in like cultural studies, media studies, in critical theory, um, all of which um, are sort of areas that my research touches on um i've been working quite a lot on this question of inequality both in cultural production and cultural consumption um and i I sort of teach courses related to that at the moment but i've also done lots of stuff on um cultural policy on stuff around kind of urban theory and and urban studies as well as um some stuff about public administration as well
0: excellent so to Get the ball rolling. The book's title, Culture is Bad for You, is a fairly provocative thesis statement, uh, but I think it's worth making clear from the beginning that it's written out of a certain respect for the importance of culture in our personal and social lives. So rather than being a manifesto against culture, it's a careful study about how what we often think of culture, at least in kind of the capitalist West, reflects broader social problems and tensions. So as a first question, can you unpack what you mean with your title, and why you think we should be skeptical and even critical of culture as it is produced, consumed and practiced today?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the title, obviously, you know, there's no accounting for history. And um, I know, in the UK, uh, Canada, certain bits of the states, certainly in parts of Western Europe and Australia. Uh, the cultural sector, as we think of it, creative industries more, more broadly are in, you know, quite a sort of tough situation, particularly uh, at the intersection of um, lockdown regulations, meaning live events and kind of, you know, live experiences are curtailed and some governments not really providing support or intervention for people who can't can't work. And there is this kind of question of like, people really you know who are in those kind of industries in those institutions they really need some academic social scientists coming along and shouting culture is bad for you at them but obviously you know where the three of us who've written it Ori and Mark and I are kind of you know sort of supportive of the title just I guess in terms of it was our attempt to fly a bit of a flag to say look where we are in contemporary society and and this isn't just a british thing but you know you see these policy discourses um all over the world and and certainly you see um these narratives coming from um cultural practitioners and and the cultural sector is this kind of idea that culture is really good for us it's good for us in terms of you know social cohesion it's good for us in terms of like health and well-being it's good for us in terms of Um, maybe you know quite instrumental benefits of things like you know improved exam results or lower crime rates or you know these these kind of things that people um, are sort of quite comfortable attaching uh, the values of um, artistic and and cultural practices and institutions to but at the same time we wanted to say whilst you know there's, there's a good research base in that kind of area what doesn't seem to be uh, kind of taken seriously is the idea that culture is heavily related to social inequalities. Um, in some ways, you know, there are cultural explanations in the kind of cultural sociology school that you see in the States um, for social inequalities. There are really serious inequalities in uh, the cultural workforce, and we, we draw on uh, British uh, examples and British data. But again, you know, there are analogous patterns in, in other uh, nations. And also, there are really serious questions about kind of who benefits from those culture is good for you stories because we can see that in terms of consumption, in terms of of practice, in terms of engagement, uh, things are heavily socially stratified as, as well along, you know, class lines divided by say race, divided by gender, that kind of stuff as well. So I guess our sort of provocative title was a way of trying to draw attention to, Issues of inequality in a situation where almost the kind of like the stories of culture being this kind of unproblematically good thing seem to be sort of settled and and seem not to be kind of challenged.
0: One of the first things you draw our attention to is the ambiguity of the word culture and the way it can at times be used to describe a very narrow set of practices and at other times it can refer to an extremely broad set of practices, encompassing as little as a very particular set of human made art pieces or writing, all the way to including even certain activities of some more intelligent animal species. So can you unpack the difficulty of using the term culture a bit and how, for this particular book, you're going to be uh, talking about it?
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you've, you've unpacked it really well there, I think. The, um, the There's maybe two things to say. One is, like, we're definitely not anthropologists, the three of us. So um, we have a sort of slightly narrower view of culture than you know a kind of purely anthropological one at the same time we're not just talking about the arts you know with a capital t and a capital a and i guess our definition of culture comes from the um british cultural studies tradition which tried to say you know we should think of culture in terms of things like you know kind of everyday human practices but at the same time we want to be attentive to the idea that culture is something that people do professionally, you know, they can do it as, as their jobs. So our definition is grounded in this conception of there being cultural and creative industries um, that are constituted by um, particular cultural and creative occupations. And again, this is a very kind of British cultural studies, uh, traditional idea. It was taken up in America um, in, in a couple of ways. You see, a sort of a definition we quibble with and we critique that comes from um, some economic geographers around this idea of a kind of creative class and also at the same time I guess there are narratives in America that are about things like copyright industries um, which is partially how the British understand them but yeah we, we take this kind of Um, culture to mean culture and creative industries in a a broad sense, ranging from, say, designers um, through film and television industries, museums, galleries in the art world, and performing um, arts, theatre, music.
0: Another key source of contention around cultural analysis is why culture is important. On the one hand, some will argue that there's a connection between the presence of culture and both individuals' lives and societies and their economic flourishing, so a sort of pragmatic approach to the importance of culture. And on the other hand, some will argue that culture is much more intrinsically important, that it's a fundamental part of the human experience. So can you unpack some of the parameters of this debate?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's tricky this, Um, partially because it's one of those debates, I think, that is as much to do with how we divide up, um, academic kind of knowledges, academic disciplines, um, academic specialties and ways of doing research as it is anything, um, that's, you know, kind of specifically, uh, intrinsic, true, or, or real about the object of study. I I think for us, we, we were particularly interested in, and again, this is a, uh, I guess, a kind of media studies, cultural studies set of ideas about culture being important because of uh, representation that, you, you know, um, what goes on in the products of the cultural creative industries on like page, on stage, on screen um, is how we think of ourselves, you know, how we think of others, how we think of other communities, how we think of, of other nations or whatever. And, and that kind of job of representation um, is really important um, as a kind of a, a function for culture. On top of that as well, you know, we've got what I've already mentioned, the kind of benefits of engagement with culture. Um, and, you know, as, as you've mentioned, you know, the sense of artistic and cultural practice being valuable in and, and of itself. And, and we relate that, I guess, to the question of like, well, who gets to do this? And taking that idea on slightly, there's also this idea that, as a set of um, occupations or or economic practices, there's the potential for the production of culture to be actually really good work, uh, both in terms of for individuals, but also in terms of for societies as well. Although there are various, you know, kind of critiques and we, we get into some of them in the book. So the importance of culture is also, I guess, as a, you know, an economically kind of productive social practice that people might want to do and again you know we can link that to that question of well who gets to do it why do some people get to do it and get you know quite significant pay social status whilst others you know don't even kind of get their foot in the door.
0: Going further into the book, you start adding a lot of data about the sorts of people who occupy cultural positions, be they actors, artists, writers, producers, or curators of sorts. And you see certain trends start to emerge as you unpack the various demographics that occupy these roles, although they can differ a lot based on the particular part of culture you're looking at. So can you give us just kind of an overview of some of the key trends you see here?
1: yeah sure i mean the, the short answer and this is british data but as, as i say it kind of you know comes up um in lots of different uh, nations and, and societies the, the key trend is that the cultural sector the creative industries and the occupations that constitute those industries tend to be dominated by a particular group of people who are what we'd call in, in the uk middle class in origin um who are from you know social elite or managerial and professional um, social origins. In most of the occupations we're interested in, there's a real issue about race and ethnicity, and there are underrepresentations um, of people of colour. And in particular occupations, there are you know really kind of significant absences of women. So for example, the film and television industries, and the occupations that constitute them, we can see that there are relatively lower levels of people of colour as compared to the general population. There are really stark absences of women, and those occupations are dominated by whether you'd call them the privileged, the affluent, the elite, the middle class origin individuals. Now, some um, of our kind of case study occupations. Um, don't have these imbalances um, museums and galleries you know broadly speaking what we think of as um, the curatorial parts of the art world they have a, a sort of an overrepresentation. you know they're, they're dominated by by women but this masks I think who gets to rise to the top of these sorts of occupations. And, and later on in the book, actually, we try and un- unpack this. Um, so we've got these prevailing trends about exclusivity and, and exclusion, whilst at the same time, we also want to say one of the reasons for the uh, mixed methods we've adopted in the book is to make sure that uh, we're not kind of, you know, missing things that don't come up in general, nationally representative data sets.
0: One of the really interesting things you point out is the differences in attitudes different cultural figures might have about their professions. And one really interesting point of difference is in how they view the importance of culture. Because while almost everyone working in a cultural position believes in the importance of culture, where you are from demographically speaking will affect how and why you think culture is important. So can you unpack some of what you see going on here? Yeah, I mean, the,
1: the start of the book, I guess, is is partially us saying, you know, the culture is good for you, uh, research, tradition, which again, you know, I keep saying we support and are, you know, sort of invested in it to an extent ourselves, isn't just, you know, something that academics have been doing, but also it's backed by um, all of the people we, we were interviewing and, and is, I guess, a really important, you know, kind of. Um, narrative position uh, in how people explain and and account um, for their working lives and also their I guess their their lives more generally in the cultural and creative industries but one of the issues and this runs right the way through the book is how I I guess kind of what on the surface seem to be the same or shared narratives end up being differentiated by um, social class race or gender uh which is something that um you know that they're the kind of three main um demographic categories that we use uh, to think through our analysis in the book and and yeah it's it's particularly interesting that we picked out uh what we'd call middle class origin people earlier on in the book uh, to kind of reflect how um, the story of, you know, culture being amazing and transformative and, and, you know, being sort of open to everybody is something that actually when we contrast it to, say, a working-class origin woman of colours um, narrative, we see quite, you know, distinctive, um, whether you'd call them narrative devices or, or tropes or or ideas going on, you know, one person um, who has had to, maybe change who she is to fit in with the cultural sector. Um, Others who, you know, almost, I guess, were were born into it and have a, you know, maybe a sort of um, much more comfortable relationship um, to the sector and and to their um, defence of culture.
0: Turning to cultural consumption, you try and analyze different forms of culture and chart them along two axes. On the y-axis, you have levels of formality with more formal events at the top and more everyday ones at the bottom. And on the x-axis, you have levels of engagement with more engaged forms of cultural activities on the left less engaged ones on the right so can you explain this chart and the sort of map of cultural engagement you're trying to provide us with here
1: yeah i mean w- well done for um trying to sort of describe a, a bogesian multiple correspondence analysis for radio i mean that's um that's good good work i i guess that the short sort of answer is that um what we find is that Um, cultural consumption is socially stratified so it reflects social inequality Um, really the story is that for the bulk of the population they're not actually kind of doing much culture in the formal sense you know so like going to i don't know uh, the opera or the ballet or you know these kind of cliched elite high or um, whatever you'd call you know these cultural forms and that's true of certainly people from Um, kind of working class occupations uh, certainly people who are you know sort of office workers etc but but also actually the professional middle class don't seem to be that different in terms of their cultural consumption and and cultural habits the real kind of standout uh, groups in our analysis are people who are working in cultural and creative industries at the same time everybody seems to have a really rich cultural life once you're kind of outside of that formal set of cultural activities and and one of the things we flag in in that chapter is the way that actually you know we have to be really careful about talking uh about you know people being kind of like excluded or um cultural institutions needing to like reach out or um do um I, i guess kind of special things to get people through the door, because actually, you know, people's kind of everyday cultural lives are incredibly rich and they're living them all the time. And the question then that comes from our analysis of consumption is really not so much, how do people have to change to like fit in to what formal cultural institutions are offering them, but rather actually how should formal cultural institutions be thinking about, um, why they aren't, you know, kind of relevant for a population that on the one hand seems to have a rich cultural life but on the other hand isn't particularly interested in quite a lot of what formal cultural institutions have to offer and we can link this kind of stuff to like broader trends I guess in the um, cultural world particularly in the art world you know things like uh, decolonizing the museum is, is a good example actually of um, curatorial institutions starting to grapple with the idea that maybe they, as institutions, need to do things differently rather than saying, why don't, say, the black British population want to come through our, our doors in the same numbers that the white population do?
0: Looking at childhood, one thing you draw attention to is how inequalities in one's education can take shape. Uh, This can at times be a matter of being exposed to certain texts or practices, but you also point out that it can also be a question of what activities your cultural education involves, since for some children, cultural engagement involves a lot of free expression and creativity, whereas for others, it's simply more stuff to memorize. So can you unpack some of the differences you see here? I mean, it, it was so
1: incredibly stark, actually. Um, we interviewed, um, I think it was 237 um, people working in cultural and creative occupations. And, and we'd asked them, you know, what was sort of cultural life like growing up? And we expected that as compared with the rest of the population, they'd kind of foreground their um, cultural lives growing up a bit more you, you know you'd expect that from people whose uh, livelihoods are within and involve um, the production of culture but there was such a really clear kind of class differential actually and this comes through this incredible amount of um, American social science actually on on this uh, stuff um, Annette Leroux, Seamus Kahn's work um, and also the kind of Um, Bodgesian tradition in in the sociology of education that leads us to expect that those, you know, from more well-resourced, more privileged uh, backgrounds would, you know, grow up, I guess, as as one interviewee kind of told us being sort of slightly incredulous at, at the idea that everybody as a kid didn't have art lessons, music lessons, trips to museums, you know, Shelves full of books in the house, trips to the cinema, and also a really kind of expansive notion of what art was and and what art could be compared to uh, those from from working class origins. You know, less sort of well resourced individuals who would tell us about you know <sighs> struggling to get art classes in schools, not having access to. To drama, um, you know, being heavily dependent on the local library as opposed to parental um, book collections or or reading habits, and in some ways being, you know, sort of dependent on really random bits of individual look for their um, immersion in culture as they were they were growing up, and yeah, that kind of stark. Um, class divide really uh, stood out to us, actually. And it was one of the things that we thought was, you know, the beginning of an explanation for some of the patterns in the workforce and in um, cultural consumption that we sketched earlier in the book.
0: Increasingly, young people today are finding themselves expected to often do poorly paid or even entirely unpaid work, and cultural occupations are no different. With an increasing dependence on internships and apprenticeships. Even if you get a paid position, however, you note that it's unlikely to pay well and will likely have poor pay and benefits, odd hours and a lack of a guaranteed future. You do note, however, that the increasing precarity is generally more prominent in certain demographics than others, and that different people experience it in different ways. Some seeing this as a gateway that blocks them out, while for others, it's just part of being young and new to the industry. So can you unpack what you see going on here? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, the the route
1: to kind of um, capture this stuff is is probably through the idea of, Um, this shared experience which actually isn't really as as shared as we'd think so it's like a cliche that to make it in um, say film tv or in a museum um, in the art world um, in the theater or or, or wherever you know as, as, as a designer that you'll have to do some kind of unpaid work whether that's you know volunteering whether it's a formal internship or whether it's I guess, kind of like taking financial risks, um, you know, working um, on projects that, you know, you're definitely not being paid for and you're having to, you know, finance your, yourself as well. This is quite common in, in things like um, theatre and performing arts and, and a bit in the film industry as well. And, and what's really interesting to us was that, like, all of our younger respondents were like, "Yeah, of course you've got to work for free. That's that's how the world works." And this mirrors what we already know from uh, the existing literature and also kind of broader trends uh, with professional occupations actually across um, a range of different national economies. But as we kind of dug into the data, what was striking was that again, you know, our sort of well-resourced, privileged uh, middle-class respondents would kind of tell us that, you know, on the one hand um their experience of unpaid work was something that might pay off you know it was almost a kind of like a career investment you know uh being on an unpaid um performing arts project might mean they meet you know um people who might be directors or writers who are like useful later on in their career um or it was something where they could like you know be sort of directly uh investing you know to sort of um, get exposure to, to use that kind of kind of cliche for those without those sort of uh, social cultural economic resources or, or social cultural economic capitals they'd be telling stories about you know they've never been paid. They don't know where it's going, they, you know, don't really seem to get more opportunities once they've finished, you know, one bit of free or unpaid labor or, or an internship. And that, I guess, kind of class gradient worried us, partially because it means, you know, if you can't afford to work for free in London or New York, LA, Paris, Amsterdam, wherever, then immediately you're going to be excluded from really important early career opportunities. So, you know, again, this is, you know, the explanation for some of the class uh, imbalances that we talk about earlier in the book, but also actually the, the false sense of social solidarity, you know, the kind of sense of like, well, we're all in this together, we all have to work for free. We, we thought that was particularly kind of pernicious, actually. And it's one of those things that really does need to be challenged, because working for free really isn't the same um, for everybody else, even though seemingly it's a kind of cliche that everybody has to do it.
0: So this all brings us to the question of social mobility, which has been changing rather dramatically in the past few decades. Uh, It definitely seems as if it's harder now to move up into a cultural profession, but in order to see if that's actually true, you look at two factors. Uh, what you call relative versus absolute social mobility, and try to see in what ways and to what degree it's now actually more difficult to move up in the world. Can you unpack some of what you see going on here?
1: Yeah, I mean th- this um, is probably the most technical chapter in the book, and it reflects, I guess, what is a is a particularly kind of you know crowded and um, technical area of of social scientific research um, and some quite you know sort of uh, serious and and occasionally kind of vicious debates between say sociologists and and economists and also between uh, sociologists themselves. The story we're telling is that 40 years ago it seemed as if it was really difficult to make it into a cultural profession Um, and the people who are whether we call them like the winners or the survivors of of that period. So people who are sort of, I guess, you know, in their late 50s, early 60s now, who'd come through that period, you know, have a sense that actually it was, you know, maybe easier then than it is now. You know, it's still hard, but, you know, um, maybe they had um, more advantages in terms of like, you know, support from, the government or uh, you know maybe there were more job opportunities or, or, or whatever and now it's more difficult and, and the story here is this I guess story that you know social mobility into uh, cultural uh, professions has, has been declining has been getting worse and actually what what we do by looking at uh, it's basically a kind of um, form of, of British census data is that that we show that What's actually going on is that um, it's not harder or easier, but actually it's been consistently difficult over the 40-year period for those from working class origins to make it. Um, There have been major changes in the class structure of British society. There are more people working in offices now than there are people working in factories and, and coal mines. And those broad changes in the class structure Are what make us think that things are getting worse in terms of access to cultural professions. But actually, when we get underneath the broad changes in the class structure, what we can see going on is this consistent um, lower likelihood of those from working class origins making it into a cultural profession as compared with those from middle class origins. And again, going back to the unpaid labor story, you know, it's one of those things where. It's really difficult to make it in a cultural job for absolutely everybody, but it's more difficult if you're from a working class uh, starting point and that difficulty has been consistent for uh, 40 years. And it's something that makes us think, again, you know, thinking through to the culture is bad for you theme. It sort of makes us think, you know, maybe this is something about the structure of cultural occupations, the structure of the cultural sector, um, that makes it difficult rather than, say, individual policy choices or, um, you know, kind of trends in the labor market. And I guess that, you know, sets up um, later analysis where we're thinking about um, class, race and gender and, and experiences um, right across the, uh, the range of um, ages of, of people that we were interviewing.
0: One topic that comes up in relation to forms of social mobility is what you call the somatic norm, a sort of hypothetical ideal person. Interestingly, the problem you find with the quote unquote ideal cultural worker is not that many people are unable to become that person, but that in trying to give people the tools to embody the ideal, a number of alternative types of workers are counted out, and the conditions that cut them out are often forgotten in favor of kind of a more individualistic approach to thinking about cultural workers. So can you kind of unpack the problems you see with the somatic norm in cultural work here?
1: Yeah, exactly as you'd, you'd outlined. Actually, there's maybe a couple of things to... Um, to unpack there. So uh, we draw on this uh, idea of a somatic norm um, that the sociologist um, Nemal Puar had used to analyse the civil service in the UK. And she found that um, the reason or one of the reasons that um, people of colour weren't you know, kind of well-represented in in parts of the uh, senior end of the British Civil Service was that the very idea of being a civil servant seemed to be attached to this particular body. The body was, you know, a white middle-class male, the idea of expertise about how you deliver advice, you know, the kind of uh, what it was to be this occupation, this job was attached to these somatic characteristics. And it's slightly strange when we're dealing with the cultural and creative sector because, you know, it's not meant to be kind of rigid and hierarchical. It's meant to be like open, Um, you know, it's meant to be interested in kind of like talent and innovation, originality. Um, It's meant to be full of, you know, like kind of weird alternative people and, and, and whatever sort of cliches you want. But actually, as you dig down, what you find in, in the uh, labor market data is this dominance of white middle class origin men. And there is an awareness of this problem. Um, you can see it actually with, you know, the, the Oscars adopting new um, kind of standards for, uh, for diversity. That's quite a good example. And you can see it, you know, over in the UK with, with various kind of funding streams um, to encourage uh, equality and, and diversity in In the cultural sector. But the trouble is, is most of these policies start from the kind of um, idea of not how can we change our institution, our commissioning process, our grant giving approach, our business model. They start from the idea of like, how can we make people who aren't white middle-class men more like white middle-class men, because they're the people that make it. And, you know, that is both a kind of misguided intervention and, you know, it's pretty sort of offensive and sexist and racist and, and whatever. But also it means that those interventions exacerbate the problem of individuals feeling like these jobs, these institutions are not for them. They shouldn't be there. Um, and indeed actually we tell the story of uh, what we'd call long range, socially mobile, uh, working class origin, women of color in, in, in that, Um, kind of middle um, of the book Um, and we try and sketch out how in the end, you know, they feel used by institutions and used by uh, creative uh, businesses, creative uh, markets, almost purely just for the colour of their skin, you know, and instead of, um, I guess, kind of opening up um, diversity in, in cultural Uh, industries, what actually happens is that they get commodified um, as, you know, someone who can maybe be sold, someone who can maybe, you know, have their um, race used in a grant application or a diversity project. And, And it means that they're, you know, kind of burned by this. And, you know, they sort of say, well, why would I stay here? Why would I carry on you know, working in these situations in these institutions? So yeah, you know, there's both this kind of unwritten norm of white male middle-classness that needs to be challenged, but also it needs to be challenged not by forcing people to adapt to it, but rather you know, thinking about how we can really you know, kind of um, find alternatives uh, to the system as, as it is now.
0: One key point of inequality you point to is along gendered lines. So events of the last few years, particularly with the Me Too movement, have brought to light exploitation along gendered lines for cultural positions. But you point to some deeper issues, particularly with women who may want to have children but have to then decide between career and family, as well as the ways men and women often find themselves employed with women doing a lot of the precarious or background work in the cultural industry. So can you tell us a bit about the gender disparities in cultural work here?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, we at the start of that chapter, we're, we're at pains. We're like really clear to say starting a family motherhood is not the only explanation for why uh, women leave uh, the cultural labor force. And indeed, one of the big problems actually is that um, say in like you know the film industry or, or the theater industry they've been very quick to say actually all we need to do is have like you know crashes on set or you know support um, changes in, in working hours and that will solve all of the kind of gender inequalities that we run into it will solve all of the kind of lack of um, female leadership in in, in our organisations and industries, but as various um, researchers have pointed out, people like Ros Gill, Angela McRobbie, um, Tanson Dent, um, they flag up how it's not like women who don't have children are still leading, you know, these cultural and creative sectors. So there must be something going on beyond this. So that's the kind of caveat to that chapter, but we were interested in uh, starting a family and motherhood because it was something that we we almost kind of hadn't looked for in uh, the data. You know, there wasn't a particular uh, specific question in our uh, field work interviews, but it was something that seemed to come up kind of quite organically. Um, And we were interested to kind of explore that um, partially as a way of kind of talking back to uh, the contemporary policy situation, but also as a way of building on and some of the really kind of important and strong research that I'd I'd already um, mentioned. And yeah, really straightforwardly, um, what we find are not only that you know, organizations, uh, institutions, commissioners, uh, et cetera, are not well adapted to um, the demands of, of care for families. Some of them are just outright hostile and are kind of candid about, well, you can't possibly, you know, work in the theatre or you can't be on a film set if um, you're, you know, going to start a family. And, you know, most of this sort of outright discrimination is supposed to be illegal, but it still really goes goes on and is still sadly, really, really, um, common actually, um, particularly in, in things like film and, and performing arts. But we end that chapter with, um, a story from, from someone working in, in the music industry, which was really, really telling to us actually that again, as, as with all of these, uh, examples, you know, there are moments of kind of shared solidarity, uh, against the relentlessness and difficulties of, um, things like the labor market for culture. But in gender terms, it's not just the kind of, you know, uh, women have all of these caring responsibilities and men do too. Actually, we were finding some evidence that men were kind of like venerated for being fathers, were held up as, as heroes. And indeed, men, you know, didn't organically raise questions of care work and questions of caring for families um, when they talked about their careers and talked about maybe you know things that had been challenges in their careers, whereas women you know were were kind of constructed as a problem uh, in a sort of sexist and, and to an extent illegal way um, from uh, some of the the evidence we we'd gathered. But also those women without children were you know in in some ways subject to a, an almost double form of discrimination where. Um, men with with families would want, you know, the kind of recognition for their uh, brilliance um, and kind of like hard work um, in comparison to women who were, quote unquote, you know, given an easy ride, as, as it were. And our example from the music industry that concludes that chapter was uh, to us kind of really quite, quite, quite telling, actually.
0: Turning to men, one thing you note is that many of the mostly white, heterosexual, and cisgendered men who have made it in their cultural occupations do believe that there are significant disparities in the cultural workforce, but this understanding is matched with a certain impotence. Uh, or a sense of impotence to change it, as well as certain blind spots when it came to thinking more critically about their own positions within the cultural industries. So can you unpack what you see going on here?
1: Yeah, um, it was really interesting this because we were expecting the sort of the literature uh, as it stood before we were doing field work. We were kind of expecting that we'd see... Um, varieties of basically like cluelessness from from senior men that we'd expect them to say there are no problems if you're talented and hardworking you'll definitely make it full stop you know and indeed I'm mean, getting on for probably longer than ten years ago now maybe like fifteen years ago uh, various uh, feminist academics were, were kind of flagging this up um, as as a problem and as you know an explanation for sexism and things like the uh, the radio industry. But when we were talking to men about their career biographies, we found that they tell us things like they, you know, sort of personally um, had been really lucky, they'd made it, they'd had lucky breaks, and they were, you know, sort of um, grateful for that. And they really understood that that didn't apply to everybody, that, you know, uh, women were really struggling in, say, the film industry um, that there was a real kind of you know problem of um, r- racism and underrepresentation of people of colour in say the television um industry or you know in the senior ranks of the publishing industry for for example. And then we, we didn't push them, but you know, we we'd kind of say, oh you know, sort of carry on. Um, you've told us about, you know, look being important. You've told us you recognise these uh, social structural problems. You know, w- what else do, do you think matters here? And they'd say, well, basically, there's not really much, you know, that I personally can do about it because these are social structural problems. And it really worried us because, you know, that the moment where uh, I guess a kind of a sociological explanation for any uh, particular social issue goes like mainstream, you know, you know, gets taken up. Um, outside of of academic papers or whatever is is usually one where you're like oh that's great you know people have understood our analysis but we were finding that our senior men had you know kind of almost sort of used those structural explanations to absolve themselves of responsibility and 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 guilt And, and it was particularly interesting you know we got examples of people who were really directly responsible for hiring you know men whose job it was to Make hiring and commissioning decisions. Who were saying, "Yeah, you know, there's nothing I can do about these problems," um, even though it's you know them who were directly responsible. And that sense of you know, or that narrative of "there's not much I can do" was grounded in you know, well, these are issues that start as we show in the book. Early on in people's lives, because of unequal access to culture, or they're to do with the education system, or they're to do with you know um, people's qualifications and people's experience and the number of you know internships they've done and stuff like this. So that was, I guess, our attempt to sketch out the evolution of um, how inequality is is you know kind of rhetorically justified and uh, actually maintained in hiring practices whilst at the same time trying to make sense of the the puzzle of what our um, interview data was was telling us
0: One interesting difference you point out is how different people will often see luck playing a role in a cultural career, but depending on your demographic, the role and function or maybe nature of luck in one's career trajectory will differ quite substantially. So can you unpack the different ways luck is viewed by different cultural workers?
1: Yeah, and and this um, sort of extends um, that same analysis of our our senior men, and I'll sort of concentrate on our senior men. And, and there's a couple of things going on. One is, um, I guess, a, a particularly kind of like it's not uniquely sort of Brit- British, but um, the attachment of of look and kind of effortlessness to um, the idea of kind of being a gentleman, um, and you know, being kind of self-effacing, and you know, talking about you know, sort of effortlessness in explaining one's um, sense of, of success and, you know, sense of sort of career uh, development. And then also there's, you know, a much wider kind of uh, set of discourses about luck, about, you know, being like born at the right time or having a lucky break uh, or whatever. And again, it was really noticeable too is that um, it was our kind of middle-class origin men who were, you know, both gentlemen in terms of how they narrated their uh, career biographies but also seem to be the ones who are getting more of the um, lucky breaks um, within their cultural uh, careers even at the same time where they recognize structural inequalities and even though actually you know look uh, in some ways had uh, very little uh, to do with it and it was also it's also you know if, if people end up reading that chapter the way luck is kind of constructed um in some of those narratives is is it's kind of um, funny you know is, is, is almost kind of hilarious in some ways that there are things where you know the stories would definitely not look uh, you know were really the you know the kind of product of really obvious say social networks or you know really obvious uh, sets of economic social cultural resources but were you know kind of very straightforwardly kind of elided into a story of effortlessness look and, and I guess that kind of you know gentlemanly modesty uh, that we see, not just actually in, in, in the UK, but across uh, a lot of different um, societies.
0: As a final question, I want to turn to our listeners who are all likely consumers of various sorts of culture and ask about the implications of this book for us. Um, so given everything you've just told us about and kind of unpacked for us, how would you encourage a healthy skepticism of the culture we consume that might help lead to both a greater awareness of the disparities and inequalities you describe, and possibly some actual material changes down the road?
1: Yeah, it's it's really difficult. This, and um, as we've been, you know, three of us have been kind of discussing the book with various people. This, you know, not just sort of how do we change things comes up, but also questions about kind of you know. Uh, our own sort of cultural consumption come up. And, you know, I I have to say that I have spent lockdown heavily dependent on particular cultural forms to to kind of stay sane. And also, you know, um, some of those cultural forms are pretty awful as well. You know, (laughs) kind of highly problematic uh, would be, you know, one way of constructing it. At the same time, I think there's a couple of things going on that, that we might think through. One line I guess is you know a sort of a story about ethical consumption about you know thinking about how have things been made about demanding more about you know drawing kind of strength actually from uh, and drawing you know from the example of things like hashtag Oscar so white hashtag me too um, boycotts of particular forms of you know cynical and appropriative um, whether it's films or uh, novels or you know stage shows or or whatever but at the same time you know and and this you can see in critiques of um contemporary um, forms of environmental um or, or green movements that you know just placing the responsibility onto the individual does mean that you know we don't start to ask questions about what are the structural problems in hollywood why is it british theater um when it's not you know in a covid related crisis seems to be full of money in certain you know parts and for certain individuals but it's dependent on you know a vast kind of um whether we'd call it you know a reserve army of unpaid laborers or uh, a deeply sexist uh writing and and casting system or whatever so we, we sort of close the book with with a question really about you know Is incremental reform of these structural problems going to be enough? Is there a danger, actually, that, you know, by highlighting these structural problems, they get folded into um, how those at the top, those in, you know, powerful senior positions maintain um, the sense of inequalities and exclusions? Um, or actually, is it something where we just say, look, culture really is bad for you and we need to rip it up and, and essentially kind of start it again. And I think this is something that has animated uh, various discussions within artistic and cultural movements for, for a very long time. And, you know, we're not the first to, to kind of grapple with this. And, you know, we can be as uh, ethical, as it were, as, as we want. Um, But at the same time, you know, building um, coalitions, building um, policy interventions and building new institutions is, you know, a really important bit of work. And it is, you know, hard work, actually, particularly as we're seeing now. when the question is, what's going to be left as societies emerge from the pandemic? And, you know, what do we want to kind of save? And actually, what do we think the costs of, of which are too high and we shouldn't? Um, go back to.
0: Yeah, so that brings us to the end of the book. So as a final question, what, if anything, are you working on now?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm working on actually loads of stuff at the moment because I'm part of a project that's trying to assess the impact of the pandemic on um, the British uh, cultural sector. Um, So that's a big coalition of uh, british universities and we're, we're going to be sort of reporting over the course of the next maybe year maybe 15 months or so um i've got various other uh, projects i'm doing a couple of papers about um cultural workers tastes and how they're you know kind of patterned and how they changed over time uh, i've got a paper coming out about um, people's sense of social mobility, and then hopefully the next big project I'm going to do is something about downward mobility. I guess this book, um, Orion mark, and, and my analysis has really been about um, social mobility generally, but but with with more of an eye on you know upward mobility and inequalities sort of class, race, and gender. I'm now really interested in what about downward mobility? Like, what is the impact? of people who come from, you know, the real kind of like top end of society in terms of their um, financial, cultural and social resources. What's the impact of of them entering these artistic and, and cultural occupations? Are they changing these jobs at all? Um, you know, are they kind of having a really positive effect in terms of cultural production Or actually is downward mobility something that, you know, we should be really cautious about um, because it's a it's a problem. Um, It's something I don't know. And I'm I'm sort of hopefully going to be spending uh, the next kind of year, 18 months thinking about.
0: Yeah, sounds excellent. So Dave O'Brien, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you.